0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, uh, at the end of the month, the last episode of every month, we have Emily Jashinsky. She's a senior fellow with us at IWF, but she is also the culture editor over at The Federalist. She helps train up young journalists uh, on the right uh, at young America's foundation. And she has a show every Friday with Ryan Grimm over at breaking points. Um, with the, the spinoff from the crystal and Sauger show, breaking points. What's it? I always forget what it's called. Counterpoints. Yeah. We counterpoints. went with counterpoints. <laughs> yeah. So the, the crystal and saugers is breaking points and yours is counterpoints. Um, but they they do a great show every every Friday, even though it means that Emily is proximate to communism and comes back <laughs> with all these wild the marxist ideas um, <laughs> um, yeah you know, I support have- a minimum wage <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's interesting like uh actually I, I want to start out with this now that you you've mentioned the minimum wage um, <laughs> i had I had the opportunity um interesting opportunity to give uh, a talk at uh, Yale's Buckley Club. And it was on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. And so I was rereading Capitalism and Freedom, which I haven't read for, I don't know, a decade. I read it in college, right? Um, and I just remember being really influenced by it in college. And I, I, when I was going back and rereading it, it was just just wrong. Like it, it just, the, the things that it described as impossible are things that we live with every day now. So it's just very remarkable experience. So I'll just give you a couple quick examples. Um, he he writes that the the publisher cannot afford to publish books with which he personally agrees or only publish books with which he personally agrees, right? Um, that's what's happening, right, with publishers and distribu- distribution outlets like Amazon. Um, it's just, it, there were a few, like another one was about, the BBC not allowing um, not allowing Churchill to give a warning pretty early on about Hitler because his views were considered extreme and because it's a state run institution, they, he basically was denied access to the public's ear. Well, that's happening on YouTube and Twitter and you know that that whole shebang. So anyway, it, it, your comment about the minimum wage just reminded me because there's still a lot of really great stuff in that book, but there's just like these discordant notes in the theory that I once believed about the free market Um, because it's just, if you are open, you open your eyes to what's going on around us. It seems like Milton Friedman didn't really predict the kind of corporate collusion that we have going on right now.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting because I thought you were going to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say when you revisit, revisited the book, you were struck by how, um, interesting and sort of prescient some of it was, and I'm sure some of it still is because I find that when I go and read, uh, you know, like, like a Murray Rothbard or something like the, the real anti-statists, they tap into that. Um, but what you just described from Friedman is so interesting because it's this total, um, I think, lack of prescience when it comes to where the cultural Institutions were going. Um, you know, if you combine it with God of Man at Yale, um, and you combine sort of monopoliza- monopolization in the tech industry with God of Man at Yale, uh, I, yeah, that's just a, the, those two particular points are very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's it's God a Man at Yale turned out to be a lot more important than Prussian freedom. Oh, I think I've just cut out. But I thought God a Man at Yale ended up being, um, quite prescient, uh, in a way that Milton Friedman sadly did not, he still had a lot of really great proposals, but what struck me was kind of a contempt for the political, right. More broadly speaking. And he, he explicitly says, you know, basically democracy and the political process more generally is a a sort of least bad option. Right. Um, it's Mm -hmm. better always to allow the complete freedom of choice that the market allows. So like every individual can choose between a smorgasbord of options. Right. Um, And then for those things that we, that really doesn't work for because there there are specific conditions, right. In that particular area of life, then we submit ourselves reluctantly to this political process, right. Which is the the least bad of the political processes, right. And, it, it, it really was, it was interesting. It was interesting to reread it because I think that would have rang very true with me 10, 15 years ago. And now I, I am like a unapologetic enthusiast of the political process. Cause it seems to me that the problem is that that sphere has shrunk so much and we've handed over basically like that, that vacuum wasn't filled by this individualistic free market that Milton Friedman um, imagined. It was filled by technocracy, bureaucracy, like like um, forms of, of power whether public or private um, and sometimes both but
1: it, that has to also have been incorrect at the time the notion that there are no there are no publishers or you could even uh, replicate that in other industries that can't afford to to publish things they disagree with. I mean, I, I assume sort of if he's talking only about major publishers, that makes more sense. But there had to have been, for instance, like small Catholic publishing shops, there had to have been small Jewish publishing shops that would not be publishing, um, you know, the Catholic stuff and vice versa. So even even at the time, um, unless he was just talking about like the major people, the major players, uh, that, that can't have even been true.
0: I, I think he was saying something a little more reasonable, which is that the entire market of publishing can't afford to like exclude a large part of their customers. Right. So I don't think he would disagree with any particular publisher. Can do see. that. The okay. point he was making was more um, just that you'll find a publisher because somebody wants to make money. If some people want to read something, somebody wants to make money on it. Right. Um, and what it doesn't account for is that if you have even in, outside of a monopoly context, right. Cause the only context that he could acknowledge is kind of, Uh, situation happening was in a monopoly context. But you don't need a monopoly if you all agree with each other, right? If if, let's say 80% of the publishing market space is taken by companies who compete with each other, but still hold the same cultural views and still find the same books repugnant, Right. Yeah. You can you can end up just excluding part of the market because you're not you can just count on your competitors to do the same.
1: And mm-hmm. I think he would have
0: imagined that there would be like this gutsy little pop up publisher or whatever. But we've seen that that doesn't actually, uh, you know, happen as smoothly uh, that, that kind of like competitive entrance to the market to try to serve sort of ideologically excluded customers. We haven't really seen that market mechanism work very well.
1: Um, I don't you know. know
0: Has worked a little better, but
1: I'm wondering at the time what it was like for like virulent communists in America or virulent, um, pro-gay writers in America on the publishing side I don't know um, but I, I'm wondering if that was also just like a blind spot at the time or that it was the Overton window was such that he was um, talking about sort of things that were considered within the reasonable viewpoint and now we've pushed mainstream things out of the reasonable kind of Overton window space and uh, like it's you've seen that shift happen
0: yeah I mean, he explicitly defends the right of communists to participate in the market and so on and like to to um s- like spread their ideas through the market and um so he's very explicit about not being a hypocrite actually and like saying like yes even communists need to to have their their sort of fair shake at the market so I, I think he
1: i guess i'm just wondering if they did if like if the market worked in the way that he envisioned at the time
0: i mean in in some ways yes in some ways no i mean you do have obviously the red scare and then the uh, mccarthy era which you know mccarthy was more correct than most people <laughs> want to admit even if you disagree with how he dealt with it i mean the fact that there were a lot of communists in the us government i'm reading the stan evans book uh right now actually it's the verona papers everything is but yeah there were a lot of communists um it's interesting the golden age of american communism is clearly like the the 30s and 40s and then in the once once um it, it sort of becomes clear that there's going to be a cold war between the USSR and, and the United States. They really, they, ha- cause it's hard to imagine. I mean, I guess not fully today because they have, you know, they have reinserted themselves in the political discourse, but like in the thirties and forties, it's very common for very like prominent people to be members of the communist party.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, I was just thinking about this actually because it reminds me in some ways of uh, Trump. And when Trump comes along, because everybody else has lost all of their trust, Trump says something and then the people who rightfully have no trust in anything left will believe Donald Trump and, and his sort of version of current affairs or history or whatever. It's the same thing, though, with people who, like, Oliver Stone uh, will say something bad about Churchill, and because everybody else has, uh, you know, maybe given a, a less than balanced view of, of Churchill or uh, someone forever, it's automatically like, well, Oliver Stone must be right. <laughs> <laughs> like he's, a, he's the one that's jumping in. So th- what some folks on the right are experiencing is what has plagued the left for decades and that like Howard Zinn comes along and because he tells a different version of a story that has been told without some balance in certain cases, they're like, well, Howard Zinn's version of history is a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I mean, he was very, ex- Zinn was very explicit that he wasn't even really writing history, but like, um. I, I do want to. This was not the tangent I was planning on going on, but, um, but a good one nonetheless. That that uh, it, it just that form of libertarianism just doesn't seem to describe the world that we live in um, very well. Which is not to say that there are no sort of good libertarian impulses, or that all libertarian ideas are bad. Actually, that that book, Capitalism and Freedom, is literally full of. Um, is full of examples of really good policies that are still really important and necessary. So the most obvious one being school toys. Um, so it's like, there's these very good, if there's a, something that's good about libertarians. I think they often find like wonky, good policy solutions um, to very specific problems, but they're, they're sort of overall analysis of life politics, the, the, you know, um, sort of the, the art of, of human beings living together in a political community just seems very obviously wrong today in a way that it wasn't obviously wrong. Maybe I was just younger and dumber. I don't know. But like I, I also think the world just didn't hadn't shown certain trends or, or tendencies yet that would totally and obviously disprove some of the things that sound really good on paper and about libertarianism.
1: Yeah, it makes more sense to reflexively err on the side of free markets when um and, and individuals when you have more of a public consensus. Um, but it gets harder to protect everybody's rights, et cetera, and to do that when you don't have
0: that consensus. Um so speaking of consensus, this is a very smooth uh, operation I'm running here. Speaking <laughs> of consensus, it is lacking uh in the Republican Party right now, um, uh, which is fighting a, a type of, of civil war over this omnibus bill. Um, so the omnibus bo- bill uh, bu- bu- bu, passed the Senate. We're talking on Friday um, before Christmas. Um, it did pass the Senate. I think it's going to be voted on in the House. You probably know better than I do. Um, but it passed the Senate by a, a big margin. I think it was like 68. And then there were several other Republican senators who didn't show up. Um, and there are a lot of kind of unusual names of people on this, this list, too, like Tom Cotton voted for it. Um, ben Sasse didn't show up. I guess that's not surprising. Um, but, you know, so and then there's this rebellion, right, in the House. There's this this talk of a rebellion and how the House members, because they're angry about the fact that this omnibus bill is killing one of their major tools in their toolbox for this incoming House majority, um, <laughs> that they might kill Republican senators' earmarks. Specifically, So there might be this kind of civil war thing. What, what is the situation with that, first of all? And then what do you think is how it's going to turn out? What does it say about the state of the Republican Party?
1: It's definitely omnibus theater, which the Republican Party is used to. And it is reminiscent of a lot of the Tea Party era fights. Um, and I think it's it's good. It's it's fundamentally a good thing uh, to say, we're drawing a line. Um, and, you know, they, they're not entirely naive. It's kind of the same thing with what's happening in the speaker battle right now, where you have Andy Biggs mounting a challenge to Kevin McCarthy. That is uh, a long shot at best, but also sort of designed to threaten him. M- McCarthy with not getting the votes that he would need. Um, It's possible if this really played out, you end up with like a Speaker Hakeem Jeffries of a GOP majority. That's not going to happen, though, because nobody's naive. There's an aspect of theater to all of this. And what Mike Lee has been doing is putting up amendments like uh, the Title 42 one uh, to push Democrats. It's, It's sort of like poison pills that shouldn't be poison pills um, to, to push Democrats, to push sort of centrist Republicans and to see what their breaking points are, um, because what's really happening here is they're saying uh, on the House side, Republicans are saying, and on the Senate side, uh, Republicans who are siding with the House, Republicans are saying, we don't have to pass this uh, year long massive budget we can pass a CR, a continuing resolution, and kick the can for a month until we have control of the House of Representatives and can uh, knock out some of these leftist priorities. Um, there are analyses of the omnibus bill that show a lot of money being funneled to uh, you know, pet causes of the left. Um, and that would include, I think, some really noxious organizations that are pushing uh, woke agendas,
0: if, if we use that word. Yeah, so what does what does this say about... Cause- Nobody wants this. Like, the, the I mean, Americans don't want the government to shut down, I suppose. But if you read a list of what's in this bill, no, this is not like popular, right? This is not like nobody is really actually, nobody's even bothering to make an argument for how this bill is good. <laughs> They're just, have you noticed that? Nobody is like saying, I mean, McConnell saying, Oh, it's the best we're gonna get or whatever. But nobody's actually like, oh, there's some really great things in this. Like it's very obviously a huge pork stuffed bill with a bunch of projects and every everybody got their little thing. But the American people obviously don't like nobody, nobody, first of all, there's there's thousands of pet projects in this bill. But nobody, I, I haven't heard anyone actually defend and say, this is a great bill, and it does X, Y, and Z for the American people. This is like become our, our sort of hollowed out decline era tradition where we just roll everything and desperately try to fund the government at the last minute. And it's an entirely horse trading behind the scenes exercise in which there really is no small democratic input.
1: Yeah, and all of these dumb priorities get their pork through it, um, and get per, we perpetuate these questionable groups because you know Republicans aren't pushing back hard enough because they'd rather get home for Christmas and avoid the PR nightmare of a, a Christmas time government shutdown. Um, so yeah, I mean it's like extremely frustrating, and it's it's we'd have to ask Rachel Bovard uh, what the mechanism is uh, to change the sort of I, I know I've seen it floated by people like Rachel and others. I couldn't describe it specifically um, but it's depressing to think that in the the Trump era we didn't get to a place where we would also be avoiding omnibuses um, because honestly people love omnibuses like Congress loves Omnibuses. They love it. It's where they can get their, uh, they can sneak in the interesting spending, uh, that they can go home and say, you know, we na- we renamed the Lake Champlain Basin, uh, for Patrick Leahy, which is part of this bill. We can do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so they like it. They can placate special interests while funding the government. Um, and it's a way to just sort of have their cake and eat it too. Uh, but, you know, the, it's, it is truly, like you said, as it's, it's a, it feels like a symptom of decay that we can't get out of this vicious cycle.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, it's the same thing with extending uh, raising the debt ceiling, right? Like the, there are these things that have to happen. They're the most basic functions of government and the most basic functions of Congress. Like it, it almost seems like Congress does almost nothing other than these bills and these bills don't actually address any of the priorities that either side for the most part is actually running on. Like, you know, the Democrats in the midterms did not run on renaming Lake Champlain for Patrick Lee, right? Like, <laughs> it's, not. It, it's, it's um, entirely this horse trading exercise. Um, and I'm not wholly against the horse trading. Like I understand that this is kind of the messy, this is how a sausage gets made and how it's the lubricant. Yeah. Past. Um, I do think the alternative with no earmarks, like I actually, I was a huge member of the tea party, but I was very much against their anti earmark stance because the alternative is they just write these vague funding provisions to the administrative state. And then the administrative state does the earmarks, right? So, like, instead of this Democrat who wants to rename something for Patrick Leahy, it's, like, some bureaucrat who's like, I really like this park and I'd like to name it for my friend, you know, mm-hmm. um, which in my view is even worse, right? So so I'm not entirely against the earmarks, but it does seem, as as you said, like, it seems like a, a really obvious symptom of just failure of institutions um, and, and decay of institutions, that this is this is literally all that Congress does because it has to. Yeah. Right? It's, no, I think that's a good point. Them.
1: Well, yeah, it's a good point because if you look at what's been considered in the omnibus, like we've just been seeing random things get jammed into the omnibus per usual. Um, there are bills about press freedom. There's bills about the border. Um, there's so many. There's bills about uh, open opening up app, the app marketplace and the big tech front all of this getting jammed into an omnibus and for an interesting reason, right, which is it's sort of testing to see where everybody's red line really is, but also because they don't vote on this stuff anymore. They don't bring it to the floor and um, a sort of individual basis because it's so like, that, again, that kind of like lack of consensus, the lack of will um, to actually do this stuff, border stuff in particular is such a great example. Um, the Title 42 extension, why do we have to slap that in an omnibus? I understand the t- the timing, um, but it's a great question of like, this stuff can all be litigated uh, more directly through the democratic process. And it never is <laughs> because, and I'm not talking about like California, your home state's referendum system. Um, but I mean, just like in the normal sort of function of uh, Congress Republicanism, uh, we can litigate, we should be able to litigate the border without having to kick it to an executive order or a provision that we attempt to slap into an omnibus um, to test Democrats. It's Congress. It's not the fault of Mike Lee. Um, it's the fault of Congress more generally that we, it, it comes to this every year.
0: Yeah. It's like the normal order of things. Like the standard operating procedure now is flying by the seat of your pants everywhere um, in a very like corrupt and anti-democratic way. Um, and I think you're really right to bring up that title two or title 42 Um as an example, right? Like we don't have a functioning immigration law and border protection law, right? We don't have a functioning border. And now we are reliant on the Supreme court in the last few days, sweeping in a day before this emergency declaration, you know, sort of emergency power under the pandemic expires. Right. Um, And essentially saving the, even the like semblance of, of, of law, on the border, which is already a disaster because you had democratic mayors declaring states of emergency all up and down the border, right? Because it it was going to be an incredible flood of people because by the way, there are democratic NGOs who are probably funded via this omnibus bill, um, who are going down and telling people, Oh, Hey, title 42 is expiring. Now's the time to cross the border. Right. Um, it's, it's, there's that is things- a really
1: good point. Like, if there are engine, like it, it. That is a really, really good point. That it's sort of this could be completely counterproductive uh, on the one hand. If you have. The provision to save title 42 and at the same time you're funding the ngos because nobody there's no direction or purpose to an omnibus bill other than funding the government and in a million different directions that you're just going to be like undercutting yourself and title 42 is a good example of this um in and of itself because it's already a bureaucratic stopgap measure right it's already there the only reason that title 42 most republicans agree the pandemic is over but they want title 42 right it's already this bureaucratic stopgap measure because democrats refuse to really seriously consider uh, border legislation. Um, and so we're already sort of kicking the can to the administrative state because there's no consensus uh, to be had, period, on what securing the border would look like. And there's a, a, a total undermining of the rule of law on behalf of Democratic mayors around the country who drag uh, these, these migrants, bait, these migrants to coming to the country by saying uh, they'll be safe in sanctuary cities. So it means that you can come to the country, cross the border, disappear into the shadows, never show up for an asylum hearing, um, or just hope that laws get changed while you wait it out, which absolutely happens. And that's just the way it goes. Um, And it's just, it's already exactly what you're talking about, the lack of ability to govern.
0: Yeah, there's this weird dynamic now, and I guess you could call it a late-stage empire dynamic or something, uh, if you want it to be depressing before Christmas. Um, <laughs> You're wearing a skull sure. sweater. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was cute. Uh,
1: <laughs> but
0: uh, it's kind of like a, a Wednesday Adam's take on on the Fair Isle sweater, yes. um, for those not watching on YouTube. Um, no, but there's this weird... Uh, dichotomy that is like really rankles me where by where there's like this incredible amount of direct consequence and accountability for totally stupid irrelevant things like a tweet from five years ago from someone who made a joke one time right or like you know um there were a couple examples in the last few months um of of students who had their college acceptance rescinded because like there was a video of them singing along to a rap song and like, and dropping the N word. Like, therefore they should be, their whole lives should be ruined and they should be like, um, like those kinds of things. There's like this incredible, very specific accountability, um, immediate accountability. In fact, I think the left, instead of calling it cancel culture, right? They call it accountability culture. Right. And at the same time, people who actually have enormous amounts of power who are making decisions every day that affect millions of people's lives in very significant ways up to and including war. There's no accountability whatsoever. You have that perfect Thomas soul. That's a guy who held up by the way. Um, But like they got that perfect Thomas soul uh, sort of situation where people who are making incredibly important decisions suffer no consequences if they did make those decisions wrong. Like we lost a war and people got promoted. Nobody got fired. You know, like, that's... Th- there's no accountability for people who are actually making incredibly important decisions. And there's, like, this very intense accountability for everybody else who, like, made a joke three years ago. And it's it's incredibly frustrating. And there just seemed to be some kind of power, class dynamic, you know, angle to this. Because it's, it's disgusting. It really makes me angry. You can tell I'm getting worked up. But, like, it really makes me angry that people can make such important decisions. I guess this boils down to uh, the the Spider-Man thing, right? (laughs) With great power ought to come great responsibility. And instead what we've done is with great power comes absolutely no responsibility. But if you're just a random dude, (laughs) then you have all the responsibility in the world.
1: It's uh, I think what you just described is accurately is a really Simple formulation, it's oligarchy. And I remember when um, Bernie Sanders said something about how we were living in an oligarchy back in, I don't know, like 2018, something. And I think I got like hot and bothered about it. I think I was like annoyed uh, because that seemed hyperbolic to me. Um, and it seemed like the sort of fear mongering that a lot of the left uh, kind of fundraises off of and doesn't seriously mean. Um, and I think maybe at the time, it, we were right on the precipice. Um, I, so I would disagree even with what I wrote at the time, but I, I actually think it's, it's shifted very clearly. There there have been changes that have like pushed us, nudged us pretty squarely into oligarchy. Uh, the the car- categorically into an oligarchy. And exactly what you're just just describing, I think is exactly that, because it's not just government, and it's not just private interests. It's both government and private interests that shield themselves while uh, wielding their power against uh, everybody sort of outside of that elite um, space of power. And that's, I mean, that's basically what it feels like to me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like nobody has any responsibility, because I mean, there's a lot of like overlapping layers of this, and I think it, it's it's defensible that you would call it oligarchy. There's there's no so you would think that you know via capitalism and freedom and Milton Friedman and all this stuff, there would be a market accountability for private actors. We've right. now seen that that mechanism has broken down um, through a combination of of sort of cultural collusion between major companies, uh, you know. And and something, frankly, we have to admit that the, the left, you know, had a point that there is enormous concentration of market share, um, usually not in the monopoly, but usually something more like an oligopoly within um, a lot of these different fields. It really blunts the consumer response. And then there's the cultural collusion, which I think is the, the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And then you have this, I mean, thinking about the, the last Twitter drop, um, Twitter files drop, right, where you've literally got... Uh, it's just it's so quintessential like this story is now the american story of how one becomes powerful and rich right this guy Yoel roth gets into the university of pennsylvania and does his doctorate work on his own sex life right <laughs> like his dissertation is about grinder and oh and yeah this is the qualification that launches him into an incredibly powerful and lucrative position where he's policing perhaps the most influential social media network, not by usership, but by influence on the national discourse and in media. Right. And what's his qualification? What, what actual elite qualifications does he have? It's literally a dissertation about his sex life. That's that's why he's there. Um. And there's no accountability. And now he's emailing every day back and forth with the FBI. some guy who's probably also wrote his dissertation on his sex life, you know, because that (laughs) that is the qualification now. It's like this very hollow ideological qualification uh, for a pipeline into the elite, an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of power. And it all feels fake. It all like this doesn't seem real. Um, and, and the fact that we seem to continue and to be able to perpetuate, um, you know, a, a, at least quasi-normal day-to-day life in America, I think is just a function of how rich we are.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think this is, Yole Roth is a good case study in a study that you talk about absolutely all the time, the breakdown in our system of credentialing, but it's it's also sort of like when you... We broke down our system of credentialing because we questioned all legitimate standards. It totally threw the baby out with the bathwater as we were in the, the sort of postmodern milieu, as we were trying to say, um, you know, we need to correct for discrimination against women, minorities. We just threw everything out the window and said, none of it matters because truth is relative. So if somebody writes uh, their and by the way, there's an incoherence in that message. If, if truth is relative, then we can't prize some truths simply because they're bad imitations of Foucault. We can't say doing a bad imitation of Foucault is uh, better than writing your dis- dissertation on you know, the problems of the Reformation or something like that, um, be- simply because it's a bad imitation of Foucault. But that's where we've landed. You sort of throw, all, if you throw truth out the window um, in the name of hedonism, that's really what it is. Um, and, and that's what it, I mean, That's it's it's this faux, um, it's it's a faux moral relativism, relativism because it's not really relativistic. At the end of the day, it, it prizes the sort of hedonism above everything else. It will come up with a million different justifications for hedonism um, above everything else. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the best way to succeed, is to uh, imitate the intellectualism that justifies any different, uh, hedonistic ends. And so it's just a bad imitation of substance is how you win out. And you, I mean, we see it how many times Sam Brinkman, uh, y'all Roth, um, gosh, they're like Kamala Harris, good
0: example. <laughs> like you could just, it, it just yeah. is like constant. Yeah. vice President. Yeah. And the president can't string three words together. Yeah. And in Joe Biden's defense. I don't think he, I mean, he, I, I never i I always thought like joe biden's reputation as being sort of a an elder statesman or whatever was always overblown like even when he was being selected as as obama's vp like i I couldn't believe that they were describing this guy the way they were as this kind of moderate elder statesman or whatever but in his defense like he's clearly declined in in age but kamala harris is unable to i don't know it just seems ridiculous to me that this person is is the vice president and, and this is it was equally ridiculous that Donald Trump became president of the United States. It should be like some kind of flashing, all of this stuff. I mean, is this our like sending a horse to the Senate?
1: Moment? Yes, it is.
0: It's yes. Like, and it, we put but- Yulam Roth in charge of the digital public square because he wrote an essay about Grindr. And we're going to have Kamala Harris as our vice president. And before that, we had Donald Trump. Like, is this all of this just we're sending the horse to the Senate? What, what, is, what is this?
1: It's exactly what it is, and it's because identity politics make us feel good in the absence of any sort of, uh you know, any sort of moral grounding or foundation. We're, you know, obviously just sort of flailing for things that make us feel good. And uh, that's what identity politics is. And that's where you can sort of connect the dots between the hedonism I was talking about and Kamala Harris. It's not like Kamala Harris is talking about doing her PhD dissertation on Grindr. Um, But she's this manifestation of how identity politics makes us feel better than substance, that it is mistaken for substance in and of itself. And that's how you elevate somebody uh, like Kamala Harris, who couldn't even get to Iowa, Because voters weren't responding to her to the vice presidency. And again, it just creates a very your your society then becomes built on a house of cards, because it's not built on like it's not rooted in any sort of firm foundation. It's just a house of cards. There's nothing real. There's nothing substantive there other than the signaling. Um, and the the attempts to to feel like you have purpose and meaning, um, and Kamala Harris is annual Roth both like fantastic representations of that um, because you know, you just it, there there it is uh, these these two. Uh, people who are way more style than substance and by style i mean identity politics and uh all the rest and it all crumbles when you know you're you're sort of pushed to do something serious and you can actually bring that to the omnibus again when we're pushed to do something serious we're utterly incapable of doing anything meaningful and serious because uh we're built on the house of cards now
0: yeah i know i think that's a, that's really well put that's that's the ultimately it's not just identity politics and ideology and wokeism and all that. That's the problem. That's that's it's that it's pushing out real. I mean, I can't believe we didn't mention Sam Brinton yet, but like, he's also obviously in this category. Like we I did, but I think him.
1: I said Sam Brinkman. I don't know why I said that. Brink- well, I, I, I think I, I was mean, thinking I always Brinkman
0: SBF, like the names I know yeah. we two people, but SBF, that's the reason I'm calling him SBF instead of, but like <laughs> Sam Brinkman freed or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. with Brinton, Sam, Sam Brinton, like they have yeah. similar names, but anyway, they're two. They're two very good examples of this. It's 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 this bottom line assumption, and maybe this is just born from incredible wealth that this is inevitable. But it's this assumption that the way we live is not is like the baseline of the world, right? That like the, the enormous wealth and power in the United States is just how it is. Mm-hmm. And that will continue to perpetuate endlessly
1: mm-hmm. without
0: adding to it. Right. And it, it, it's this idea that you can, you can have absolutely no competence or productivity. And I wonder how much of our economy is completely fake. Like how yes. much of our GDP is just paying people to police other people's speech or like, you know, Keep the, the, the employees in line from making a, a, a joke about a bikini or something. <laughs> How much of our economy is completely fake? How or is much it fake? Think- completely fake.
1: Fake, speaking of Sam Bakeman, fried how much of his fake based on effective altruism, right? This this postmodern attempt to feel something good, to feel as though you're contributing to the world, flailing and grasping for a sense of meaning that is actually rooted in nothing other than signaling. Um, we now know that a decent chunk of our economy was built exactly on that. And I think it does raise the question, to your point, Inez, where you can even go even, you can go even further and you can talk about, um, you know, Lehman Brothers, you can talk about the stuff that was, it wasn't intended, the only sort of moral end, um, was making more and more more and more money, which is as empty as the moral end of, of racking up more and more virtue signal points. Um, it's the exact same thing. It's just the other side of the coin. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a, a huge chunk of our economy. And I think one of the lost chapters of American history that's just not told very well is the Gilded Age. I think it's very interesting that HBO poured uh, millions and millions of dollars into making a show on the Gilded Age that so was very good um, last year. And I'm hoping it continues. But I think it's interesting that that came out now because, listen, like Carnegie had all of his reasons for turning to his version of effective altruism, um, but it was rooted in something much realer than what Sam Pankman-Fried's effective altruism was rooted in. And so is this all part of the same... Time period, you know, is this all just the ice age um, of tech and whatever, or are these two distinct periods where um, the money that we've racked up in this era is, is fundamentally going to be used differently than it was before um, the turn of the 20th century? I, I think it's out. an open question.
0: Yeah, and run out because it's not being regenerated, right? That that wealth, if it's being regenerated, it's being regenerated by a very small percentage of very productive people you know, um, especially in these tech companies, right? Like, I think that's, that's the real danger of Elon Musk. I actually have a um, essay coming out in the Washington Examiner magazine about this, but I I really think that's the real danger that Elon Musk poses to the left. I think the, the censorship stuff is sort of what they throw out to their low IQ rabble, um, (laughs) on the left. I mean, we have, everybody has a low IQ rabble, but like, I, I think that's, they're like, oh yeah, Nazis are back on, on Twitter. Like, Here's Kanye <laughs> tweeting a swastika like, like he's not clearly mentally ill. Um, those are the the sort of, um, I don't know. I, I think those are the the kind of uh, the smokescreen. And, and don't get me wrong, free speech in the new sort of public square that is Twitter and Facebook and all these um, social media companies, I think is an incredibly important issue. Um, but I think the real danger here is if Elon Musk can prove that he, he can run a tech company with a third of the staff and it's just like a bunch of it's like 99 percent a bunch of like white and Asian guys and Pakistani guys like in a, a clearly stinky cubicle like coding all day. Um if he can prove that you can cut your payroll by 70% and stick your finger in the eye of the diversocrats and turn uh, there was some really good back of the envelope calculations done uh of basically just by cutting payroll, how potentially profitable Elon Musk has made Twitter. Um, I don't know, man. We're going in, like, those tech companies the last two months, they've been laying off a lot of people. Um, they're getting rid of, they're, they're kind of copying Elon Musk. They're getting rid of a lot of those perks. Uh, Meta just got rid of uh, the $200 a month in like Lyft uh, vouchers or whatever they were giving every employee. They got rid of some of that. Um, there's going to be a belt tightening And I think that's really what the sort of institutionalized left is afraid of is that Elon Musk will show how much, how many people making $150,000 or $300,000 in not just the tech sector, but in every facet of our economy are producing absolutely no value. And they're either doing email jobs or they're shifting like, you know, one spreadsheet to another, but they're not actually producing any value or they're, they're just ideal. The value they produce is purely ideological. They're political officers. You know, and that they're political officers
1: in their control. I mean, I think it's also that it, if he shows that the folly of their sort of police, self-appointed police force mentality that they, you know, f- fundamentally that we don't need to be controlled by them, and that in fact it's not good for shareholders. To, uh, you know, be parts of companies where they appoint themselves to uh, exert that level of control and and work with the FBI to control the American population and the American discourse. Um, and that they don't have to, you know, you can let speech exist because people are always going to think bad thoughts and always going to express bad thoughts. You can let it exist. And, you know, the truth sort of wins out. The light uh, wins out. Ultimately, in the end, it creates for a better world. If, if he shows that, um, Man, there are a lot of jobs in trouble. There are a lot of uh, you know HR manuals that uh, will have aged very poorly and probably
0: get quietly revised. Yeah, and a lot of people who are going to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's let's since since this is our Christmas, this episode will air just after Christmas. Um, let's let's start with you. You mentioned Gilded Age, and um, I know you've written a review of White Lotus. I mean, what are you planning to? Watch over when you have maybe a little downtime over over Christmas. What do you what do you recommend? What what have you enjoyed this year in terms of the cultural output of our declining civilization?
1: Oh my gosh, this is an impossible question because I basically watch everything. So for me to even like come up with, it's easier for people to like tell me examples and then I can say what, whether it's good or bad. I've been really enjoying the new season of Reno Nine One One, which is the lowest of the lowbrow. Uh, possible, but it has been fantastic. It's just like what was airing in the aughts on Comedy Central, unchanged, except for in the best possible way, which is that it is, is skewering. Um, the absurdities of uh, you know sort of b- both Trump conservatism and woke leftism. And so it's just been fabulous. They've been uh, absolutely fearless. Uh, they have a great opening cold open on pronouns that I I hope the clip is online. I think I've seen it online, which everybody should go check out. Um, but yeah, White Lotus. If if people haven't checked out White Lotus, I can't possibly recommend it enough. Um, I thought the second season built on the first season's momentum, and it's clearly a criticism, uh, not a criticism. It's clearly a commentary on our decadent society, to borrow a phrase from Ross Douthat, which is a very brave thing to do on HBO. Um, except it's very subtle to the point where I think it's it's tricked some people into enjoying this commentary on decadence. I think it's an open question whether it's a full critique, but it is at least a commentary. So that's a super super bingeable show. Um, as far as anything else, I'm trying to like I'm I'm trying to. Talk my way into remembering more of what I've watched this year, off the top of my head, because it's an overwhelming question. There's so much, um, but I'm not coming up with any answers uh, while I try to run out the clock here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but those are those are two good good uh, recommendations. I, I watched White Lotus. I finished uh, the second season um, just like a week ago or something, um, a couple of days ago. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's beautiful. It's like beautifully done. It's very. I see what you're saying. That it's not clear. It's a critique. It's at the same time. It's it's shot. It's like making fun of it and making fun of how we are now. Um, But it's done in a way that is is like makes it aesthetically sort of um, appealing in a certain way. Uh, And so yeah, I'm I'm not clear on whether it's a critique or not. At least not a deep one. I I think it's sort of a superficial critique for sure. But like I, I I don't know what he was trying to say um in in like if he's really trying to like deeply criticize these people but one of the things that I, I like about it is that without giving away too much is that like you see things go wrong but then fundamentally with a few notable exceptions um <laughs> it, like things actually work out for the rich and powerful for the most part like it especially in the first season things work out for the rich and powerful even though you think they will which I actually think it's very true to life and very important to see, because usually you don't see that on film anymore, I feel like.
1: Yeah, that's true in the first season. And that's why I think the first season is more of a class commentary and the second season is less of a class commentary and more of a gender, sex, gender commentary, um, because I don't want to spoil the ending for anyone. um, But I think there's a pretty... It's almost like it ends the the class commentary in a very particular and definitive way um, itself. I don't know that that's true. I doubt it. um, Because the whole premise is basically uh, a... following the, the rich and, uh, powerful, uh, on their vacations. And ap- apparently they're going to the Maldives next, uh, which is very, very exciting. Um, but yeah, I saw it as like, one thing really I haven't seen a lot of conversation about is its treatment of LGBT culture. And again, like, is this a commentary on androgyny? Is it a commentary on, um, you, you sort of the, the, Life of extremely wealthy, powerful people um, without children. You know, whether it's uh, whether it's Jennifer Coolidge or um, the sort of LGBT characters. I don't know. Um, divorce, marriage, whatever it is, adultery. You get all of it. Um, but I thought it was really fascinating this season how it took a, a and kind of lens to sex dynamics uh, between men and women, and really, I think honored women's. Uh, yeah, I, I think the most important Polia piece of writing is the the opening chapter of Sexual Persona um, on Sex and Nature. I, I think it's called Sex and Nature, like Women and vi- Men and Violence, something like that. Um, but this is like ripped straight out of the pages of that essay, which I think sets the tone for all of her work.
0: Yeah, I I've long thought that the biggest difference between Polia and conservative conservatives is basically that she's. A conservative. I think. I think she has an identical, at least to mine, like identical, identical worldview on what the state of nature is and what the nature of sex is. Um, mm-hmm. Is a deeply conservative worldview. But I've always thought it's like almost like a personality difference. She's obviously like really excited by the <laughs> state of nature in all of its like violence and uh, and sort of erotic passion um and i think there is something about conservatism that is, is easily parodied of course by the left like well beyond any you know any reality but there is something about like the instinctive conservative reaction that like oh this is really powerful and we really need to to be very careful with how we mess with this right um
1: mm-hmm. and yeah. just seems, like,
0: totally thrilled by the whole thing um by the state of nature but i think yeah emily and i did a whole episode on polio one time uh We should do another one um, Um, over at, yeah, we should do another one. We should update, um, update on, on Polly. But I do think she's, I I think she's in that category of, of a handful of people whose um, views were sort of unusual uh, and, and almost can't really say this about Polly, but like, like James Burnham, you know, Christopher Lash is having a, re- a revival, right? Like there's these thinkers that seem like, wow, they they really nailed something about where we're at right now, whether it's they were writing in the 1940s or 1970s, right? They really kind of were prescient. Pahlia, I think, uh, is the prescient, most prescient sort of chronicler of the sexual revolution um, and where we are. So I would put her in that that trio of thinkers that is just being proved more and more right every day.
1: Yeah, I think she also, um, she's excited by the, the sexual revolution. She has a great line in that uh, essay I was referring to that everything great in the West has come from the quarrel with nature. And again, like, I think you see that in White Lotus, even with like the LGBT characters, as I was talking about earlier, like what happens when you push all of this sort of into the mainstream, whether it's good or bad, I don't think we, we know what White Lotus is saying, but we know what it's saying is that there are going to be unforeseen challenges and difficulties. But, uh, Polya, I think where she, as the sort of, uh, she refers to herself as like a, the baby boomer, um, transgender. She's always referred to herself as transgender in a different kind of sense and that she tests the limits and enjoys sort of pushing the limits of, of typical gender roles. Um, but, In that sense, I think she has also always been clear, and I think White Lotus is getting at something similar, that the quarrel with with nature... Means there's a fight back, right? That human nature fights back with nature. It's part of nature for humans to to also fight for limits because uh, Paulia talks about how the the obscenity codes created the golden age of Hollywood. That the best films of all time are those that were operating within the strictest limits, um, because that's what makes uh, the 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 mystery of woman is what makes sex. Um, It's what makes sex true to nature. It's what makes it beautiful. And if you're in a world absent any obscenity, what you get is the Kardashians posting pictures of their butts on Instagram every day. And Polly is very critical of that. So that's, I think a huge point of divorce from her and uh, a lot of the other sort of boomer uh, philosophers. um, And that's like a very, very key distinction.
0: Yeah, I guess um, we'll wrap up on, on, Saying this, there seems to be no accountability and no limits. And instead of creating the flourishing of even even sort of passion and art, right? We've found the opposite, right? Like one of the things that I, I've always comes back to me is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life is in the context of UBI, but I think it applies to the conversation we're having now is Nancy Pelosi arguing in favor of UBI on the basis that people will like write poetry um all <laughs> those marks have UBI, uh and I, I think we're finding the opposite that without limits without accountability, without you know um real responsibility we have not Misery. only yeah not only are we not happy we're miserable, not only do we have you know quote unquote no limits on who we are now we don't know who we are um and and then we we've you know we're we're just sort of floating in the ether, and we we don't even produce any in my view like or at least we maybe we're having a revival now but we don't seem to have in, in the last couple decades produced you know notable art or um you know beauty of any kind it really we really haven't used our freedom uh, from limitation
1: no we're the the it richest beautiful the richest most privileged society that ever exists and buy $10 lattes out of fruit shipping containers like this is what we're building with our money is we're dotting the suburbs with freaking shipping containers Starbucks that are built to look like storage facilities um, that serve us $10 lattes. And it's just like insane, the the juxtaposition with the wealth um, that you see with this this total lack of real and and true beauty. Um, And and that is, I think White Lotus is very much on that. And a super quick recommendation for people on a, a show that you may have missed because it's an Amy Schumer show. I highly recommend Life and Beth. Um, that aired on hulu earlier this year it was in the spring and it's it's very much in the vein of girls i think girls is one of the best pieces of millennial art that will probably ever exist um it's uh, self-aware but not self-aware in the places that count um and i would describe life and beth as basically the exact same thing um this return to beauty and return to nature and return to truth um and it doesn't even know that's where it's going um, so I just can't recommend that show enough. It's also funny. I know a lot of people hate Amy Schumer. She's had some really, really the vast majority of her work since Trainwreck has been terrible. Uh, whereas before, it, the vast majority of it was excellent. Um, but this is actually very—it's—it's it's funny and it's watchable, and I highly recommend it.
0: Um, well, that's good. Why don't you? Uh, why don't we close out? I'm going to ask you what you um, what your plans are. You're actually you're at home. Um, <laughs> the, you're you're hanging out, um, which is why there's been a, a little. Drops in the internet and so on, but um, so what are you doing for Christmas? What are your your Christmas traditions?
1: Yes, I'm in Wisconsin. It's 11 degrees below zero. The wind is blowing some 40, 50 mile per hour wind gusts outside. So I think the the internet may not be as reliable um, as as usual. Um, but yeah, we'll just be celebrating Christmas with uh, the cold and the snow, which is the best kind of Christmas possible. That makes you grateful. For all of the enormous blessings that we have in today's day and age, and uh, keeps everybody indoors together and uh, nice and cozy. So we'll be going to church, opening presents. Uh, my mom is wants me to make cookies with her today, uh, so I guess I'll be doing that.
0: <laughs> that that sounds wonderful. Um, on my end, we—I mean, my husband is Christian, so we've—I'm sort of like rookie Christmas. Uh, because i didn't celebrate christmas most of my life and um but we always went back to his family but for the last couple of years it's been complicated um for by covid and now by like extremely high prices i don't know if anyone has checked the cross country uh planes lately and apparently half of them are not going to make it given this storm coming in um but so i've had to do a little bit of rookie christmas myself but the, the real uh holiday of the season for me is, has always been new Year's. Um, A lot of people hate New Year's. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's, it's kind of like a secular Yom Kippur um, for people. It's, I think it's, I think it is really important to mark the passage of time uh, and to take stock of the decisions you've made in your life. And um, I'm, I'm actually, this might I'm actually a very unsuperstitious person. I'm not, um, I'm a hard time not laughing when people talk about astrology, for example. Um, (laughs) But I, I am. Superstitious that the the company and the feeling and I guess the vibes that you have for New Year's, um, I think it does set some kind of tone for for the year. So um, it's always very important to me you know, to have good company, good cheer, um, and and bring in the New Year. So that that's really my my tradition here. But uh, Emily, thank you for for once again stopping by High Noon, um, and I, I hope that you and your family have a, a very merry Christmas. Uh, cuddled in your warm home away from the minus 11 degrees 50 mile an hour wind chill weather
1: same to you folks up in new york it's not it's not warm there either <laughs> no it is
0: not <laughs> all right um thanks for coming on emily thanks it is um us. and uh you you can also, thanks to our listeners, um, I always read this at the end. Thanks to our listeners. Uh, this is an IWF production. High Noon is an IWF production. Um, we also have other productions. Uh, we have podcasts, She Thinks, and uh, At the Bar, the latter being a, a legal podcast and the former being more day-to-day politics. Uh, so you should check those out. Uh, and if you have any, any you hate Emily's recommendations, <laughs> shows uh, that you can watch over Christmas, or you just want to chime in on some of the things we've been talking about here, you can email me at uh, inez.stepman at iwf.org. And as always, be brave. And we'll see you next time on High Noon.